Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Yeah, there are a couple words that Deb mentioned that I hope you picked up on, because if you know something is a matter of life and death, it changes your perspective. If you're going on an outdoor adventure and right before you go, someone says there is a major risk involved and you need to take things seriously and you know it's a life and death kind of risk, you are listening more carefully to the guide and her instructions. If you know something, if you're in a difficult part of the world and you know something could go wrong in a split second in that part of the world, you definitely have a a matter of urgency. You definitely are staying on high alert. And I say that because... What James, when he uses the word life and death, those aren't just synonyms for him. He is explaining the urgency with which we should take his words. We've walked a couple weeks, as uh, even Steve mentioned and helpfully mentioned, we've talked a couple weeks about trials. The first part of James is about trials and trials that function as tests, tests that make us grow, that cause us to build our spiritual endurance, that make us complete But we also know that just as much as trials can do so many good things in our life, we also, it's not that hard to connect trials with some dark places that we could go in our life as well. We we have to recognize that, and and I don't think I'm breaking any Sometimes Trials feel like they're leading not to spiritual growth, but to spiritual damage. Because even as we're tested, many times we have this sense that like, I'm not going to do or I'm going to blow it. I'm going to sin. I'm going to like walk away from my faith. If this continues to go on and the longer it goes, I, I'm, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I don't know how I'm going to wrestle through this. Trials sometimes will make us, it, it definitely seems like it just presses our buttons. It can make us question convictions, make us maybe not quite as certain, make us doubt. Maybe we begin to isolate and withdraw from people because we're hurting so bad, we just don't think we can take it anymore. Maybe maybe internally we begin to just sink lower and lower. You see, trials can seem to push us into some very challenging directions. And what James realizes is something that I hope you realize is that it's a short step from feeling kind of overwhelmed by trials to going to a place of like, well, man, this trial keeps coming at me. It will not stop. And if it doesn't stop, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to blow it. I think I'm going to sin. I think I'm going to make some of the worst mistakes of my life. And James indicates we could go to a place that is just hazardous to our spiritual health, a place where we'll be deceived, misled, and destroyed. And he calls that out, and I want you to see it in verse 13. So let no one say when... He or, we could say, she is tempted. This is where James says, don't go to this place. Don't say, I am being tempted by God. And here's why. Because God cannot be tempted by evil. 
And he himself tempts no one. James puts up like this big, unmistakable flashing sign saying, do not proceed down this road. Do not go here. Don't go in this direction. Don't jump to the conclusion that when I'm facing this trial, then God has set a trap for me. James says God isn't doing that. That isn't what's going on because that isn't who God is. That's not his nature. James anticipates we could be tempted to think, you know, this bad thing happened and then I sinned. So actually it was kind of God that made me sin. He was trying to trap me. He was trying to take me down. God is trying to trap me to mess me up. God does test us, but he doesn't trap us to make us fall. As a matter of fact, so far from that, what James is going to tell us, what James is going to show us, and I hope we're dialed in to hear what he's telling us, what he's showing us today, is he actually, he's actually going to give a word of grace by pulling back the curtain and saying, here's what's going on. It's going to tell us, like, don't, don't think this is God trapping you, but if you want to know what's going on, your eyes need to be wide open. If you want to process what's going on in your life when you feel like trials keep coming and temptations keep coming and it seems like it's almost inevitable that I'm going to sin, you need to know what actually is going on. I think James would tell us it's a matter of life and death because those are the words he uses. Trials, tests, traps. What James is going to focus our attention in, in just for a few minutes, I want us to focus our attention on two key relationships. Two key relationships that I, w- I want all of us to assess today. And the first is the dynamics, the relationship between you and sin. So that's where James goes. You need to know the mechanics going on in your heart between you and, and I need to know the mechanics going on in my heart between me and sin. The reality is that there is a trap that can destroy you spiritually, but the trap wasn't laid by God. Look at verse 14 as we dig into what this relationship we have with sin is. Verse 14, but each person is tempted. So there really is a trap coming, but, but is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by God, but by his own desire. And notice the next in the progression. It's so important that we see this. So we've got our own desire, and our desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's the explanation. The progression is this. We are lured and enticed. And if you hear the word lure and entice, and you think, that's kind of like fishing terminology, like baited and reeled in. That's exactly the terminology that James is using. Our own desire has a way of enticing us and luring us. As we hear these words, things, you hear the word lure and you get the idea, okay, so sin is going to come at me not with like a big rat poison label, but sin is going to come at me promising things better than it's going to deliver. There's going to be something attractive that's going to be appealing to me, that's going to draw me toward this. That's the word for lure and entice. And we know this. We know, I mean, if if pressed, we know this is the way it works. The messes we've gotten ourselves into, the paths of sin that we have walked. Generally, there were lots of places along the way where we knew better. 
but we were deceived. This is a, a hostile situation. Promptings of our own flesh, our own nature, our own desire go on. It's not always so straightforward to us of like, yeah, do this and you've blown up your life. Never feels exactly quite like that. We're lured and enticed. And I want, when I do something that's wrong, if I'm willing to admit it, which sometimes I'm not, let's even just say, okay, okay, so I'm willing to admit I've done something wrong. Often my next play will be, yeah, I did something wrong, but it's not my fault. I did something wrong, but clearly, like, it's just how I'm wired. Genetics are genetics. I'm just, I'm just prone to do that. And so I have this desire, and yet here we're watching a progression that isn't saying, oh, well, if this is how you're wired, then you're excused. You don't have any responsibility in that. That's not, that's not the way James is writing this. Or, or I want to say it's not my fault because if you had had the environment I grew up in, if you had, had the background I grew up in, if you had known how everything went, went this right, I, don't, I didn't have any, any agency in this. I, I couldn't even make a decision. This is the way it just had to go. And yet this is pushing us away from excuses and saying this is what goes on. Our desire, like we linger on something there. There's something in us that is broken and ruined since the first humans And desire conceives and gives birth to sin. Sin is like crossing that line. God says, like, here is the way, walk in it. Here's the path, here's the line. And we go, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do things my own way. When we cross that line, somewhere in our heart, somewhere along the way, sin comes. Sin is also not just like missing the mark, crossing the line, but sin is also when God gives us something good in and of itself, but we take it to an extreme, we make a good thing an ultimate thing. We, do, we overwant it. We over-desire. So the desire originally would have been fine in its place, but it's now just gotten all, or like it, it means way, way too much to us than it ever should have, than ever God ever designed it to mean. Sin is also when we know something is right and we just don't, we don't do it. It's not just doing wrong things. It's also when we know something is right and we don't do it. And I think it would be helpful at this time to just begin to process, are there sins in my life? It would be so easy for us. My goodness, here we've gathered in church. We've made a decision to be in church. We've taken the Lord's Supper. We've sung. It would be easy to think, oh, yeah, when I read about sin and being enticed, I think about all the bad things people do out there. And Curtis, it's a terrible world out there. And so I'm thinking today about all these bad things I heard about that people did. And, and in, instead of, like, processing it personally, we kind of look at the things that we've done, the lines we've crossed, the things we've wanted too much, the good things that we haven't done, and we go, oh, yeah, well, that's a mistake, but, like, that's kind of no big deal. And if that's our mindset, if like we think, okay, all the sinners are kind of out there and, and it does not really include us, then frankly, a lot of what I'm going to say is not going to have much benefit. But if we're willing to not play games, if we're willing to be serious, I think God will expose some things because it, what it's saying here is that desire that maybe is wanted or unwanted that desire that came to us, maybe you 
strategize for it, or maybe you didn't plan for it all, but there's the desire, and you've got to do something with it. So how does that work? Well, it works like this. You have something triggers in you an impulse of anger. And rather than working to de-escalate and shut that anger off, you move toward harsh words or even violent behavior. You see, the desire to like get mad and express it now has conceived, it's given birth, and sin has come. You have this thought of fear, and who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? But that fear has lingered, and it's become real, and it's become strong, and it's actually overridden things that you know to be true, and now this thing that started off with, like, I'm, I'm afraid and I better control things, or I better get some answers here, actually now I've taken you to the point where you say, I really don't have any help, and I really don't have any hope, and there really is no way forward, and I, and I, I really have nowhere I can look to. So you have this thought, you have this thought of lust, and instead of like shutting that down, walking away, you linger, and you linger a little bit longer, and you excuse it. Like, well, frankly, everybody, and, and frankly, it's not that big of a deal, and I'm kind of entitled to, and it's really hard to say no to, so I, and that is the moment desire that may have just caught you completely unguarded has turned into something different and has given birth to sin. Or maybe you find yourself looking at the world around you and you see a bunch of people that just don't quite get things right like you always get them right. So every narrative you play out is how you're the best, you're the smartest, you're the bravest, you're the toughest, you're the straight shooter, you're the quiet, whatever it is, and you look at others and go, they don't nearly do this the way I do it. Of course, you maybe not even verbalize that. Then you take this moment of how do I stack up against them and the desire to be maybe just mildly better than them kicks in and sin is born and it's called pride. We could go on and on with bitterness and laziness. We could go on and on about people pleasing where you want someone's respect, you want someone's approval, you want someone to just like, like you. I'm not sure we ever outgrow that. And so you're willing to do something you know is wrong because the desire has given birth to sin. You want their approval. Or you might be willing to misrepresent the way a situation went down. You might be willing to lie about what you said when you really didn't say it or say someone said something when they really didn't say it at all. You might be willing to do that so that another person listening to you would process it and go, well, I don't know about that person, but I like you. And in that moment, you have what you want. And James says, the desire you had gave birth to sin. Uh, I mean, this just can go in so many ways. You begin to get frustrated and you feel like, you know what, I'm just going to blow off some steam here. And maybe it's verbally, like physically, <laughs> something comes out your mouth or maybe you type it or you put it out and you go, there, everybody can just deal with it now. And as emotionally satisfying as that may be, 
to just like decimate all the idiots in the world? What James says, what might happen there is you let a desire give birth to sin. There's so many different ways this could go. The desire takes hold and leads to sin. Is there something that came to mind? I covered, what, six scenarios? There are 6,000 of these. I might have, like, knocked on the door of your house, but I mean, I certainly have had to wrestle through, okay, where is this going on in my life? Could it be that God is not letting you approach this casually? Could, could it be that God is saying, you, you got to pay attention here because there is a progression, and a progression is a deadly one. Could God be calling on, I think he is, could he be calling on us to take this more seriously, these desires, lingering on them and letting them grow to something they shouldn't? You know, there, there's a, a lot of areas in our life where we pay very, very close attention to what's going on. So, frankly, most of the time, when it comes to sports, especially the teams or sports that I like, I know what's going on. I check. I make sure. Like, where, where are the standings? What are the records? What are the averages? Who's doing what? How'd this game go? I, I know. Sometimes it can be meticulous how well I know what's going on in sports. I, I pay attention to it. Maybe you are like that with your house. Maybe you don't like one thing out of place. Maybe it's like your room. You don't like one thing out of place. And when, you, when that is there, you notice dust on this and you're meticulous because you want things to be clean. Or maybe a lot of students in here, maybe you are this way about your grades. You, not everybody's this way, but maybe you are when you get a syllabus, when you get an assignment from a teacher. Like, you're just not going to drop that ball. You, you've got it. You're going to deliver. You're going to get a good grade. You're going to make sure you don't miss one assignment, one, one quiz. You're going to be ready for it all. You pay attention to it. You know the cues. You know the things that could work against it, but you pay attention. Or it might be the lawn that you go, there will be no crabgrass in my lawn. Every bit of it's going to look good. And when you see the crabgrass, when you see something coming in it, you go, not on, not on my watch. I noticed. and I'm going to deal with it. You see, there's so many things. We could go on and on. With, with investments, you know the trends. You know, oh, this is up and this is down. You know it because you check it all the time. You pay attention to it. You're following it. You're dialed in. You know these things. You know where it's going. You know your social media page. You know, oh yeah, 46 people like that, but 75 like the other thing, and so-and-so said this, and they did this, and they posted this, and they did this, and you're keeping track of hundreds of friends, and you know what's going on in all of their worlds, and you know what's going on on your page. You know it meticulously. You see, there are so many things that we take seriously. There are so many things we pay attention to, so many things where we'll adjust so that we're in the know on this. We'll act, we'll, we'll know that's a waste of time, that is not a waste of time, you better do that. So many things, and I'm asking, are we that way with our own heart? Are we that good at finding these desires that come up? And if left unchecked, they will give birth to sin? Are we that dialed in? Do we pay that much attention to it? A desire that lingers too long, it's like just an extra minute of lingering instead of running from sin. It's like a, an extra justification or excuse instead of moving toward the truth. It's just an extra click. Just one more. 
instead of shutting it down. It's just an, an, another lie, another deleted history so nobody can see. We tell ourselves, ah, it kind of didn't happen if the history is deleted instead of moving toward confession. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do we see this? Do, do I recognize what's going on in my heart? The desire conceives and it eventually gives birth to sin. Sin grows and it leads to death. We know what ultimate spiritual death is. We know what that is. That is eternal separation from God. Scripture couldn't be more clear on that. But there is also something for the believer that is like shriveling up our relationship with God. So in that way, sin is leading to death, like death and shame and sorrow and guilt. Death in that we can make no progress in, in our Christian life. Death in that we, we have deeper enslavement to sin. And it feels like the, the bondage that we are in gets tighter and tighter and tighter. We, we find no hope. We, we come into a, even a service where we're all gathered to worship and we find nothing stirring our affections. That, that is where sin takes us. It moves us toward death. And the cycle will repeat again and again and again. Do we appreciate the progression? And everything that I've said before, you could be listening and go, I appreciate it. It just sounds awful. It sounds so negative. What could help us? Sin seems to be like this wrecking ball. And the worst part of it is the wrecking ball is not on the outside. The wrecking ball is inside. Internally, sin is taking us to places that just like if we were thinking straight about it, if we were walking with the Lord, if we were in close harmony with Him, we'd never want to go down that path. So what do we do about this wrecking ball that's just meant to wipe us out spiritually? I mentioned that there's one relationship that we have to assess, and that is the relationship between you and sin. But there's another relationship. It's actually more important that you assess this one. And that is the relationship between you and God. So as much as I know the beginning part of what I've said today is tough to hear. I promise you it's tougher to preach. You also need to know that it is critically important that you know there's an urgency in your life with how you view God. It matters. It will make a difference. It will matter if you really, really urgently look to Him as your help and your hope and your refuge. Seeing him for who he truly is. I read lots of military history, and in ancient times, the, the army that had the high ground was like the army that had the advantage. It didn't mean they didn't have to fight. Of course they had to fight, but they had the high ground, so they had an advantage. And, and more, in more modern times, it seems like if, if a country has air superiority, if they control the skies, they can control a lot about what's going on on the on the land. And it seems like they have an advantage. And I want to tell you what the high ground and what the air superiority will be for you in your walk with God is your view of God, how you truly understand Him to be. And you have to be convinced. When you think about your relationship with God, you have to be convinced that He is a good God, that He has a good nature. You have to be convinced. That's why James would tell you, you cannot think that he's trying to trap you. It's just not true. As a matter of fact, it's a long way from that. Look at verse 16. Yeah, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. You could think that, but you would be deceived if you did. No, no, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
That's like one of those 100% statements. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If I only look at my sin, it becomes intimidating, but that isn't my only weapon or resource, so I don't have to go like, well, how am I going to kill this sin before it kills me? That's not all I have to do is just focus on the sin. I also can look at the nature of God. He's the giving God every good gift. And I just was thinking about that. Every good giving that God does, every perfect giving that God does, just reminded me, like the nature of His gift is always going to be exactly what I need, just what I needed. So in eternity future, we're going to look back and go, it's amazing how God gave me exactly what I needed. I couldn't have gotten along without it. And if God were stingy, I would have been decimated. But God knew exactly what I needed. And then we're also going to be reminded of not only did he know what I needed, but he delivered it to me in the best way imaginable. I might have thought, God, if you could give me this in this way, then that would be perfect. That would just be perfect if it could come in this way. Then I would really know, then I would really believe, then I'd really be happy, then I'd be really grateful. And God overrides all the ways I think it should be done and gives every good gift and every perfect gift. And the delivery of his gift is in the best way will be in the best way imaginable, just the way it needed to go. And by the way, the timing of his gift is going to be impeccable. So the story that will be written over my life will not be God had this great gift, but he showed up 10 minutes too late, 10 years too late. It will not be that. It will be that I was wandering and I thought, I thought this is it. It's all going to collapse on me. And at just that moment, God with no arm twisted behind his back, God because he's just a good father, said the timing is perfect right now. Do we believe this? Do we believe God isn't neutral? So on this day in September, where you might be tempted within an hour of leaving here, that God isn't neutral in that temptation, kind of crossing his arm going, I wonder how they'll do. Hope, hope they do okay. But God is actively giving what you need even in your trials and in your temptations. God knows exactly what will cause sin not to grow. God will give you a change in your desires. I'm not saying you will ever be perfect until you meet the Lord. I, I know that. But God can change the desires of your heart where you want something different than you wanted a month ago, a year ago. Someone means more to you, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And his approval means more to you than the approval of someone else. God can change your desires. He can like change the price tags that you have on all these different things and go, this is actually the most valuable thing. God can give you a means of escape. Even as we sense we're being trapped, sin is never a done deal. We ask, Lord, I need your help, and God can give you the pathway out of this. He doesn't leave you exposed going, sorry, I tried my best. But I guess this one, you're just going to have to give in because I have no help to offer. It's just not the way it works. God is a giving God. He gives us strength to endure faithfully when we are out of gas spiritually. Like, I, I just can't go any further. 
Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. It's by his mercies that we are not consumed daily. He gives us new mercies each morning. He even gives us people who will help us press on. That's why I love in James again and again. It happened in verse 16. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, my dear family. Like he just points us, like, dear family, we are in this. So one of the things he's going to give us is each other to say, you're not alone. You're not alone. He's going to prompt my mind. He's going to prompt your heart to think of someone who could use a word of encouragement, could use a prayer, could use a note, could use a text. And that's going to be their spiritual survival. And God's going to say, see, I gave that to you through them so that both of you can be blessed. I've noticed repeatedly in Psalms that like, there is real life stuff going on and constantly they're reflecting on the nature of God. God is my refuge, my strength, my fortress, my helper, my deliverer. Even as I'm facing this and that and that trial and that struggle, this temptation, even as I'm dealing with my past, even as I'm dealing with the past that has some ramifications in the present. And verse 17 reminds us, he's our father and he doesn't change. There's no shadow, no variation. So shadows in that time would mean, would kind of represent inconsistency. The kind of shadows come over and then they leave and it's not really permanent. Yeah, God's not like that. He doesn't change. Do you think there's a 10% chance he might change? There's not. He's doing something governed by his will. It says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. So I love, the, I love the parallel here, right? So we've seen what sin brings forth. It brings forth death. But of God's own will, he brought us forth. He delivered something. He delivered us by the word of truth, by the revelation of who he is and what he's done, that we would be a kind of first fruits, almost like a pilot for what he's going to do with all of creation. He's going to remake the whole world, and we are like the first fruits. We are the, the first part of that, remaking everything. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He has a plan. He's going to bring us fully to completion, fully to maturity. He is working on us. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God has this plan, and he's developing that. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus lived that perfect life. Every desire that he had never, never ended up into sin leading to death. The only death Jesus experienced and the only sin he tasted was ours. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He's the conqueror. Like the word of truth is going to deliver us. The Holy Spirit's going to impress this on our heart. I think sometimes, I know my parents must have said, what is it going to take for him to learn? I know that because I say that sometimes as a parent. I know teachers must say that. Like, what will it take for this to, like, click so that you get it? And when I come to this passage, which I've read before, I wonder, it, I kind of ask that same question, when is this going to click? And I'm going to ask you, when is it going to click for you that this is the progression of sin? that could take hold in your life? When is it going to click that this is a matter of life and death? When is it going to click that you can't play around with this stuff? When is it going to click that you need to confess and forsake and turn to Christ? When is it going to click that you have a good father who loves to give good gifts 
to his children. And the fact that you feel overmatched by a temptation doesn't mean that he's overmatched at all. When is that going to click so that when those first desires come, and maybe they're unwanted, maybe we didn't ask for it, when is it going to click that, wait a minute, even as I have this desire, even as I could let it grow, I do have a Heavenly Father that is going to give me strength, a path of escape. It's going to bring people around me that I could go, could you help me with this? Because I, I don't want to see death written over my life. I don't want that. I want to grow. Maybe you could see today how God could be your first refuge rather than an afterthought. You see sin in all of its like, ugliness. This is exactly what it delivers, but oh, we have a good God. And we'll walk out of here today knowing we have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that we can go to God for his help in our time of need. Can we do that now? Can we pray? Father, in a room this size, there are temptations that are very, very strong right now. And there are tests that are just about overwhelming for some in this room. And there are moments of weakness where we feel like maybe we're even questioning whether you're for us or whether you are against us. So Lord, do what only you can do. And that is drive our hearts away from sin and drive our hearts toward you. I pray that we would be just overwhelmed with your goodness, that we would recognize that you alone can rescue. You alone can save. And I pray that these words would not just be on our mouth in the next few moments, but these words would just be the the stamp of our life, the stamp of our month, our week, our day, that you came to our rescue again. Lord, help us as we assess our relationship with sin, as we assess our relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.